The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. If we start thinking of it that way, then la francophonie is enriched by all this variety. It's not impoverished or threatened. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Linguist Podcast. This week, we are going to finalize our discussion with Dr. Barry Anselet. Uh We are going to continue the conversation about Louisiana French. Today, looking at the future of French in Louisiana. So some of the topics that we will be discussing are what we call the double minority status of Louisiana French. Also, how Louisiana French interacts with other Frenches of the world. We talk also about uh, standardization of writing and also how music is representative of Louisiana French, as Dr. Ancelet says, in motion. We also get into what Dr. Ancelet means when he says that French in Louisiana is a performance language. And we talk about some technical issues about recording and transcriptions and, and things like this. And I think it'll be a very informative episode. Don't forget that if you go to the website, weeklylinguist.com, you can pull up the show notes. And uh, on the show notes, you will find the topics that we're talking about. You'll also find the phrases and the words used in the episode. If you want to follow up or maybe you're not a French speaker and you'd like to see what some of the things that were said, they're listed right there in this section, phrases and words. And then we also have a more detailed list of all of the resources mentioned in the episode. Don't forget, you can check us out and interact with us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is Weekly Linguist. Let me also apologize for being a couple of weeks late in posting this episode. When You know, when you're a professor and finals week comes around and different things and different demands on your time, it's my fault. I, it's my fault. Uh, I take the blame and I ask for your forgiveness. But please enjoy the episode and please send us your comments and your critiques and your feedback. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. After this week's episode, we have some very interesting episodes coming up. We are going to stay on the Louisiana French for a little while longer with Amanda LaFleur. And then we're also going to talk to Donald Grushkin and Layla Monaghan about American Sign Language. Then we go over to Nigeria with Jafet Ajani. Um, and uh, we even go from there. We're going to cross the ocean again over into Brazil, and we're going to talk about the vowels of Portuguese. So we have a lot coming up, and I hope to get these episodes all posted and scheduled and ready to be submitted so that I can head on a little bit of a vacation uh, to Wyoming and Montana is the plan. So if I can get all of these set up and get them on Podbean to be able to be automatically released... That is my plan so that I can take a few weeks vacation. But anyway, enjoy the episode, and um, don't forget to send us your feedback. Brown, 1993. Quick quote here. Complicating the linguistic situation is the double minority status of Louisiana French, not only in relation to English, but also to other varieties of French. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of also, it's, it's been stigmatized for, for forever then. Yeah. So, you know, uh, as I said, you know, we, we had been... Our ancestors have been told that their French was of no value. It was a, an embarrassment. It was a shame. It was broken French, all kinds of things. And so they, they, 
in, in, in the 60s and 70s, they start coming out of that, you know, well, before they, they, they were told, they were pushed into the corner by English. We start coming out of that to reevaluate and, you know, revalidate our French. And then we're pushed back into another corner by the so-called good French. Right. Who, who, describe, right. who describe our French as broken. Well, you know, that's not going to work. And it's psychologically damaging. And so, you know, we, I used to tell people, French visitors who would come here, they would say, you know, we'd say something or you'd hear something. And they'd say, oh, mais c'est pas comme, c'est pas comme ça, ça se dit. <laughs> ça ne se dit pas. Ça ne se dit pas. And so I would always say, mais oui, ça se dit, je viens de le dire. <laughs> of course it said, I just said it. Uh-huh. Didn't you hear me? Yeah. And then they'd say, no, no, mais c'est pas comme ça qu'on dit ça. C'est comme ça qu'on dit ça. And then they would say, well, okay. Uh, then they started saying, uh, oh, c'est intéressant comment vous dites ça. And I would say, no, ici, c'est pas intéressant. Ici, c'est normal. Ici, vous êtes intéressant. <laughs> Which threw the whole thing. You know, and the, 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 is, the issue is, if, if I, as a Louisiana French, you know, person, speaking person, who has become literate, if I want to read uh, some French author, if I want to read Victor Hugo, right? Or um, Gaston Miron from Quebec, or... Antonin Maillet from Acadie or some uh, African author or some Maghreb author, I have to make an effort to penetrate the way they use the French language, right? I have to, I have to, uh, I have to, you know, penetrate uh, the, the, the different vocabulary, the different strategic expressions, the different styles, different references, like they're referring to the world they grew right. up in. I didn't grow right. up in Paris or Dakar or, mm-hmm. or Montre- Montreal. I, I mean, so I, if, if, in order for me to understand snow, <laughs> I have to make right. an effort, right? <laughs> but if I'm interested enough in the story, I'll make that effort. Right. We do that all the time. The English-speaking world does that all the time. We read Australian authors and British authors and Nigerian authors and Indian authors. We go to the movies and watch Crocodile Dundee and, and, and you know uh, – We watch Bollywood movies. I mean, we do that all the time. Mm -hmm. So, to me, that should be routine in the French-speaking world as well. If somebody from Paris, or let's leave Paris out of it, if somebody from Lyon Mm -hmm. (laughs) wants to read a a Canadian-French novelist, Jacques Godbout or somebody, they they don't have all those references in in their minds. Jacques Goodwood grew up in a remarkably different way, and he uses the language in a different way. So they got to make a make an effort to understand that. Well, why wouldn't they do that for me? If somebody wants right. to read my collection of Fabliaux, Le Trou dans le Mur, mm-hmm. it's, to me it's up to them. They picked up the book, right? It's up to them to make that effort. I do it all the time. Right. So why wouldn't Everybody do that. And if you do that, here's the thing. If we start thinking of it that way, then la francophonie is enriched by all this variety. It's not impoverished or threatened. Right. It's enriched. Right. Look at the French-speaking world. I mean, how many people, how many people in America wouldn't understand if, a, if a, a, an Australian says, uh, oh, you have a Barbie? They don't know. They don't mean the doll. They said the barbecue pit, mm-hmm. right? So we we do that all the time. We're flexible. Language speakers are flexible, naturally flexible. That's the way it works in the French speaking world too. Except that for too long, uh, 
there was this centralizing imposition, this power from the center, center that was saying, no, no, those non-standard things are illegitimate. Well, no, those non-standard things are maybe perfectly legitimate, not only legitimate, but they, they enrich, they enlarge the footprint of La Francophonie. But didn't French have this much more on an organized level than English ever has? Because you had the Académie, and you had Abbé Grégoire wanting to anéantir les patois. And this was more at a governmental level yeah, Fr in France, French right? was more centralized than English was. You never really had this governing authority well, for, for the one English reason, language. For one thing, the, the largest French-speaking population is in France. Right. Whereas the largest English-speaking population is in America. It's an important difference. So the English, yeah. as much as they might have tried, and they produced Shakespeare and everybody else, but <laughs> but we had Hollywood and we had rock and roll, and I'm you know <laughs> this is a good point. There was no arguing that. So right. you know the 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 dynamics in the English-speaking world were different because of population, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be a workable principle anyway. Right. That's true. That's true. And you know, and you know. That is happening, and it's happening not by any decision that the French made, deliberate decision, conscious decision. It's happening just out of a recognition of value and, and interest. I mean, the Quebec authors and filmmakers and musicians and singers and the Acadians and the Africans and the Maghrebists and, and even Louisiana, Zachary Richard, they love Zachary Richard. So they figure, oh, well, la dans you know. <laughs> they, it, it, if you produce good stuff, it, it causes people to say, well, you know, I'll, I'll buy in, mm -hmm. right? And that has been happening. I mean, Antonin Maillet is appreciated in the French-speaking world. Kuruma is appreciated in the French-speaking world. Uh, Kirby Jambon, a teacher from Louisiana, just won a prize, a literary prize, from the Académie Française. Wow. I know. <laughs> right? So it shows that things are changing that mm -hmm. in, in a good way, in the right way. Well, finishing up here, I wanted, to, I wanted to talk for a minute about the written language. I want to close on that. But I want to throw a couple of things out to you real quick and just get your comments. You may have noticed that there's no such thing as real quick. Well, that's okay, because we can take this into three or four episodes if we have to. Um, I will not speak French on the school grounds. Was it, I, I forget, like I told you, I'm bad with names. It's either, was it Irie or Ivy Lejeune? Was he the one that wrote that song about, the, when they have to go like, 200 lines writing no, no, on the no. board? No. Um, it wasn't him? No. I forget who it was. Uh, uh, that was Had Hadley Castile. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's it. And it was 200 lines is like the name of it. And he talks about this idea of, you know, French got, you, you were punished for speaking French when you were small. No, I and didn't have to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, not you particularly, but you, I mean, children that went to school in kindergarten were punished for speaking French. And that contributed to the stigmatization. But they, the idea was that they used to have to write lines. I will not speak French. I will not speak French. And you know, every time that I've ever, teaching French in Louisiana, I hear Every semester, I get – I must think about Lejeune because I had his granddaughter or something in one of my classes. But anyway, um, you hear this from one or two students every year, and it's always the same story. My grandmother spoke, and my parents understood but couldn't speak, and I got nothing. And it's the same story over and over and over. We, um, 
It's the typical it's the typical immigration process. You know, people come from foreign lang- foreign country. Their parent, the the people who come speak the language. Their children understand it and speak it to some extent. Their children don't because they've bought into the American dream. And uh, it's just that that process got remarkably delayed. Yeah, in, in some ways, in some ways, it's like Cajuns and Creoles in South Louisiana immigrated to America around around 1900. Right. <laughs> we were already here, but we immigrated. We finally immigrated. Finally started immigrating. But you also mentioned that the stigmatization was so bad that the idea of bringing French back into the schools was initially more popular in the North. It was difficult. It was difficult for people here to believe that the schools that in their experience had humiliated them and, and, you know, and perpetrated psychological uh, torture in a way uh, on them was now, you know, uh, saying, Oh no, no, no. We changed our minds. We're going to teach French. In fact, what is this? Some kind of trick? Right. Not to mention the fact that because of the Falk affair, uh, you know, places like Vermillion Parish, Resisted Codafil's efforts to in, to install standard French. They if they if they were going to have French, they wanted their French. So there was that issue as well. Mm-hmm. But they had. I, I mentioned to you when um, when we started talking in the beginning. I started studying French in Alexandria, and I didn't know this at the time. But I found out years later that the French class that was offered at Brame Junior High School in Alexandria was there because of Codafil. Uh-huh. So I don't know. That might be on the on the border between North and South. And don't get me don't get me wrong. Coderfield did a lot of good. I mean, uh-huh. uh, you know, absolutely did a lot of good. And and DiMaggio, Jimmy DiMaggio was a visionary in a lot of ways. Uh, it's it's just that it took a while. It took a while to 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 get the system right. To get it right. Yeah. You know, to get it just right. See, for example, the uh, Dictionary of Louisiana French uh-huh. that came out in twenty what was it, oh uh, six or oh eight or something. Uh-huh. It should have come out. It should have come out in. 1978. That should have been the first step. Yeah. Discovering what we had and how to use it should have been the first step. We did it upside down. Right. Uh, the anthology that we did. Have you seen it? I have. Yeah. Uh, it should have been that those, those kinds of things should have been, should have happened early on where, mm-hmm. you know, we would have, provided written written texts so that schools and and education you know concerns could have had something to use we kept saying you know we want you to integrate louisiana french in the classroom and and a lot of them said absolutely delighted to do that but i don't have anything i don't have anything to use so that's when we started thinking okay we need to start producing things to use and what's one of the reasons why i started transcribing offering to musicians to transcribe the words to their songs on the back of their albums in the liner notes. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why I started writing poetry. It's one of the reasons I started writing plays. It's one of the reasons why I started writing short stories because I figured, you know, we have to produce a, a critical mass of considerable stuff right. to right. before anybody decides they're going to start using it. I'm not going to mention any names here because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I want to ask you a question about that. Something I've always wondered. Not the same musician I mentioned a few moments ago. Like I said, I don't want to mention names, but a different one. Told me, he said, I was talking to him one time. He said, Jared, I don't really speak French that well. And I said, but you got so many songs in French. He said, yeah, it's kind of stuff I remember my grandma used to say and, and things like this. My question is, 
the music that's being produced today, how representative of Louisiana French is it? Well, it's representative of Louisiana French in motion as it's constantly evolving. You know, the way my, the way my father spoke was not the way his grandfather had spoken exactly. So, you know, it, it, this is in a constant state of evolution. What's happening now is that the, the younger crowd, you know, the younger generations, Lost by Ramblers and Fafolet and all of them, mm-hmm. they're using the language in a way that partly comes from the past, but also partly comes from the school. From the immersion program. That's what I was wondering. This school has to have affected because a lot of these are coming out of the immersion programs. Absolutely, and sure, and you you can hear that now. On the one hand, they you know a lot of them make a make a deliberate effort to try to honor the way that Louisiana French is used, and so you know they're trying for that. But but on the other hand, you know you might hear a a ne or je suis allé sometime. You know it's right. a, that's okay. That's okay. It's right. It's okay to evolve. It's okay to move. And by the way, I can tell you, if somebody had told me back in 1974, when we when we worked on the first concert that ended up becoming Festival Zacadien Creole, if somebody told me back then that in twenty uh, in 2019, a group of twenty somethings would have won a Grammy for a record that was exclusively in French. <laughs> well, right. The the fact that these these younger this younger generation they they you know they're not as numerous as I would like for it to be. Mm-hmm. But madly creative, immensely talented and apparently committed to doing this in French. Why I'm not sure, but it's it's producing some of the most amazing results. Annalar Edmiston, Christy Guillory, uh, you know Chris Stafford, uh, Blake Miller, all of these young, prolific Louisiana French poets. You know, and these are products of the the immersion schools. They're, par- immersion, they're products of the immersion program, and because of their ability to use the language in that way, they are able to go back and figure out how D.L. Menard and Dewey Balfa and Nathan Apshire and all those people were using it. You know? Right, right. I, my students at, at McNeese that come out of that program, I call them mes immersionistes. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> you know? but and they have, the, their French the, is excellent. But the tools, the tools, the toolkit that they get, the toolkit they develop, enables them to not use the contemporary version if they don't want to. If they want to reach back and use a, a more traditional thing. But, uh, Codefield produced a bumper sticker in the 70s that said, L'école a détruit le français, l'école doit le restaurer. Yeah. So uh, the, the school killed French, school should revive it. So my question is, do you, are you hopeful for the future? You sound hopeful for the future. Yeah, I mean, but uh, <clears throat> on the other hand, or in What's an accurate prognosis is what I'm asking. Oh, everybody. Every single person who's ever interviewed me always asks some version. It's inevitable. You have to ask that question. Some version of that question. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But what I do know is that I was in my mid, early to mid-20s when I started getting involved in this. And I'm about to turn 70. And it's still happening. So, you know, it's lasted 50 years longer than anybody thought already. And uh, it, you know, I got five kids. They all speak French. I got ten grandkids. They all speak French. So, 
there's at least going to be some oscillators around <laughs> to prove them wrong. Uh, you know, they keep they keep they keep predicting our demise, and somehow we keep flying under the radar. Amen to that. Now, you know, look, let's be honest. We're on the ropes. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. We're on the ropes. We, you know, we need a lot of effective effort to continue to survive. But we've done it in the past, and so I don't know why it could be done. Now, the other thing I want to say is that I'm about to turn 70. I've done my thing, man. It's up to y'all. Mm-hmm. I did my best. I handed it off. No, I get you. It's up to y'all. I get you. Well, we're doing what we can at McNeese right now. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working hard at it. Judy Maxwell, who is my director at Tulane, was speaking to me one time about. Well, I did an interview with her, and she was on the podcast. She talked about this idea of the students in, and I think it was Wales, but they were going in and they were studying the language, and then they were coming out of class and they weren't using it. And then somebody posed a question to them: "Why are you not using it?" And it was like it never occurred to them. That it was a classroom only thing. It never occurred to them that the whole point was so that you could come out of the classroom and use it. What I hear you saying is that people are coming out of the classroom and using it. They're using it now. They're they're you know not using it twenty four hours a day, but they're but, finding expressions. But they're or finding ways to use it now. Yeah. One of the things I've uh, one of the ways I put this is that in, in South Louisiana today, French is a performance a performance language. You know. And I'm not just talking about on stage. I'm talking about when they want to do that, when they want to be there, be that person, that side of themselves. Uh, my son, Emil, uh, and my daughter, Claylee, uh, both have circles of friends with whom, you know, when they get together, they speak, they just do it. They didn't, nobody said, hey, let's do this. They just do it because they were all in immersion together and it's how they knew each other. It's how they got to, you know, it's how they developed relationships with each other. I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, oh, but I, this is. I can't afford. At to. least in some domains, I can't afford not to be. You know. Yeah. Um, I want to switch over here really quick to to finish this idea of oral and written. One of the things that we you we have pointed out already, we it's like we've talked about a lot of this stuff already, but this idea that a grammar has to, uh, uh, should be written that it has to be written to be to have a grammar. You pointed out, and we as linguists know this now, right? Louisiana French has consistent, predictable, and thus anticipatable spelling and grammar, even if it's not, so to speak, written. All of those things are not, you know, untrue. They're not accidental. They're, yeah, and they're not untrue because you can't write them down. But one of the things that I that I and do, we are and we are working on a descriptive grammar, by the way. Yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to Amanda about later yeah, on. Amanda and I and. Uh, and uh, Francine L- L- uh, Longham mm-hmm. are are working on currently working on a descriptive grammar, and I mean you know again devil's in the details, man. You know it's you have to tease this stuff out from the way language actually is used, and the only way you can do this is to have a, a, a critical mass of uh, recordings, faith accurately transcribed, so that you you can count on what's there i mean sometimes you know transcription if you have an uh, an, in- an inaccurate transcription it's almost worse than nothing yeah because it can give you a false impression right you know one of my favorite examples of that is uh, 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 a french scholar who 
transcribe Dewey Balfour singing Chaque fois je pars, les enfants me applaudissent, ça me suit à la porte de cour. They follow me to the yard, the gate. And he understood Pentecost. Pentecost. <laughs> and, and, and then he went on to analyze that lyric for its religious value. Well, it didn't have any. The person didn't say that in the first place. So, you know, transcriptions right. have to be very faithful. And so we have a, pro a process here at UL that, go, it, that puts it through a very intensive vetting process. You know, we get Amanda and, um, and uh, you know, Brenda and, and, and uh, several, of, a number of people, a handful of people to listen to the stuff and say, is that, is that actually what that person said? Or does somebody hear something different? Mm -hmm. You know, that's the only way you can do it. And one of the things that I learned early on was nobody can do this by themselves. You ha it has to be a collaborative effort. You have to have multiple sets of ears and and heads considering this stuff. I remember when I took a class with uh, Erlene um, on Cajun music, there were several times that I would, you know, I would try to write down the words to some of these songs that I would, and I would get most of it, but I could not get some of it for the life of me. And I would take it and Erlene would listen. She'd get it just like that. You know, obviously, because she's had more exposure to that, uh, to, to, to the Louisiana, you know, Cajun French. But it was just, it was amazing how she could hear something. And then when she said it, I heard it, I, I could hear it, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a big, you know, you know what a Mondegreen is? No. It's a misunderstood lyric. And, you know, this happens in English, too, you know? Uh, Excuse me while I kiss this guy. Instead of kiss the sky, kiss this guy. <laughs> Right, I mean, it happens all the time. People hear things that are, that are off, and then and then if you hear something that's off and it gets in your head, it's the only way you can think of it. I used to think that Lucille left her husband with four hundred kids in the field. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was four hungry kids. I used to think when I was a kid, four hundred kids. <laughs> so yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I bet Lucy in disguise <laughs> with diamonds. Instead of in the skies. So, yeah. you know, yeah, it happens all the time. And it happens particularly in, in transcribing uh, Louisiana French stuff because of the non-standard non variations that you sometimes, that sometimes get thrown at you and it throws you off. Right. Let's finish on this. What became normative French was determined by people who wrote it. I'm sorry, who described it, who wrote it, who, 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 who ended up basically prescribing it and teaching it. Right. Um, and then you said, finally, or in the end, French, written French in Louisiana will be determined by those who use it, write it, and teach it. Which is it's one, of the reasons why, one of the reasons why I started writing it and, and figuring out ways to teach it because I wanted to help determine that. Well, and this is, uh, this, let's, let's end on, on that speaking of the future because you finish that paragraph by saying, I'm going to say this in French first, and then I'll translate it for our audience. En Louisiane, because I love it. En Louisiane, écrit en français, c'est parier sur l'avenir. So, in Louisiana, writing in French is betting on the future. And I want you to finish on that. Yeah, I mean, it's why we did what we did. We wanted to um, participate in it. We wanted to uh, ante. We wanted to put up an ante to play in the game. And, uh, you know, Hopefully, by having written some of this stuff and having you know, contributed to the, the critical mass of stuff that's considerable, that's what's going to be used in the future to, to determine where this is going and how it happens. So writing in French in Louisiana today is saying, 
in the future, there's going to be some people to read this and consider it and study it and use it and put it in play. Well, if you look up parier in the dictionary, it says it says bet or gamble. Yeah. I would say that this was more of a bet than a gamble. Yes. It, because it, it seems like it, we, we, the odds are... The odds are decent. Hopefully, so, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I'm. I feel like I'm playing a good hand. Hi, okay. <clears throat> In closing, remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. There you will find further information about this episode. Like more information about the guest, a selected bibliography, and any links mentioned in this episode. As the saying goes, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell us. You can tell a friend by rating us five stars on iTunes and by writing a glowing endorsement in the reviews. Don't forget to subscribe when you're done and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguist. For any feedback, positive or criti- critical, <laughs> write to us at podcast at weeklylinguist.com. Tell us what you think, what we can do better, or even suggest the topic. Ah, a topic for an upcoming episode.